At Evidence Live this year, one of the sessions was about the work of Evidence Aid and their attempt to bring high quality evidence to the front line of a humanitarian crisis. In that situation, it's very difficult to know what will work. A conflict, or even an immediately post-conflict situation, is characterised by chaos, and merely doing something is vital. But though each situation is unique, sharing what's worked elsewhere could be the key to maximising the help given to vulnerable people. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and I sat down to speak to some of the people who create and some of the people that use that kind of evidence. I'm Phil Davis. I'm on the Board of Trustees of Evidence Aid, and I've been working on systematic reviews probably for the last 25, however long Cochrane is, um, that, that many years. My name is Marie McGrath. I'm one of the directors at Emergency Nutrition Network, which is a charity based in Oxford, UK. And we build knowledge and know-how and evidence on humanitarian nutrition in crises and fragile and conflict-affected states. Thank you. Nick? So I'm Nick Hooten. I'm a Research Policy and Practice Advisor at the Rebuild Consortium, which is a research program, a health systems research program, working on um, health systems in uh, conflict-affected settings, post-conflict settings. Um, we've been uh, engaging um, more in protracted crises and how our evidence is relevant for those. Um, Marta Valdez, I'm Deputy Humanitarian Director in Oxfam Global Humanitarian Team. Uh, we work in more than 40 countries in uh, big emergencies and we work in water, sanitation, hygiene promotion, uh, emergency food security and livelihoods and, and protection. Uh, so my name is Ben Heaven-Taylor. Um, my, I'm new into the role of CEO of Evidence Aid. Um, before that, I was uh, actually at Oxfam uh, for about 16 years, um, and I was I spent a lot of my 20s and my early 30s being a frontline humanitarian worker. Um, so I suppose I'm a recovering humanitarian, you might call me that. Um, and I've come back, come into this job really, I suppose, determined to uh, try and uh, enable, as I say, better decision making. Uh, as close, and I think how how we can enable decision making as close to the ground as possible because that's really where uh, it needs to happen nine times out of ten. Um, it's about ensuring that those who are actually on the ground and, and making decisions uh, in the moment are doing it on the best available evidence. And um, what was your information gap? What, what did you need to know when you were right there? On occasion one would arrive in a, in a particular context and uh, you'd be setting up and you'd be thinking what to do and, um, and as often as not a box would arrive with all of your equipment in it uh, and uh, literally an out-of-the-box response which very often was the, a good one the right one uh, and and that uh, enabled you to do something um, but the thing that always nagged me in that environment was is it the right thing mm. and am I doing it in the right way and where do I go, where do I even start to find the evidence that enables me to make those choices? So you're trained to do the thing that, that the things that you're, you're there to do, um, and you know how to use the thing in the box, um, but you don't always uh, uh, know how to, how to do it in the best way and to understand the context where you are. And I think um, 
I think context is everything. So I'll, I'll give you an, an, a practical example: is cholera prevention. You know, one one of the um, you know one of the reasons why um, organisations like Oxfam do water and sanitation in in any given context is to pr- try and prevent the spread of communicable disease and particularly real horrors like like cholera. Um, and um, but actually, in in and and that is absolutely right. You know, you need to uh, you need to provide clean water. Uh, you need to ensure safe ex- uh, excreta disposal, and you need to ensure that people's hygiene behaviour is is as is as uh, robust as possible to prevent the spread of disease. But there are also things that I'm particularly in the zone of of hygiene promotion. Um, where do you focus your your messages? Is it actually around uh, water? points uh, and, and uh, or, or around latrines or is it actually around for instance the safe disposal of bodies which was a really critical um, area in um, uh, in Congo where I where I worked quite a lot um, traditional burial practices uh, make um, the transmission of cholera um, even more complex than it than it would do in many other con- contexts um, the same is true I think of, of Ebola if I remember rightly um, so yeah, I think it's 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 really about asking yourselves the best the, the best set of questions in order to understand your local context and therefore taking your out of the box response, which you need because if you don't have that, you can't respond quickly. How do I use that in the best way possible? And that's where you need accessible evidence. Um, I worked as an NGO worker for many years and I remember I was working in South Sudan in 98 in the height of the emergency. We were opening a supplementary feeding program. We were living in tents. There was an airstrip where things landed and I had no access to it. It was before we really had internet. We had a phone that was a satellite. There was no mobiles and we were trying to set up a supplementary feeding program. We needed to alter our admission criteria because we, the, the amount of children that were going to be admitted was huge. And where did I go and ask? And the plane came in with our supplies and I had a copy of Field Exchange, which was ENN's publication that I later went on and I opened it and I read an article about a program in Sierra Leone and they, that program were having the exact same dilemma and I went great that's what we'll do then and we ended up using the same criteria and so there's that rich exchange that we need to encourage um, uh, between practitioners as well is critical because evidence from what can look like different contexts may be very very relevant and sometimes the best judge of whether evidence is relevant is the practitioners themselves and making that all these layers of evidence accessible allows them to make the judgment rather than we need to make the judgments from on high. And and I would like to complement that because I think that this is absolutely right. And the fact that a lot of humanitarian workers, they don't record, but they have a a huge uh, knowledge in their minds Mm -hmm. and we don't record that. And when the moment the person leaves, all the information is leaving and we are missing all this wealth of knowledge, data, evidence. And it's a pity. So maybe another question that we need to discuss is about how we are going to build on this evidence and how we are going to give the value and to put it at the center as well because if not we may be looking at answering questions where the answers are already available yes Mm. and that's what we do through our publication field exchange is we just capture that for the last 20 years the wealth 
of experience and learning, but often is not valued in the same way. I think the systematic reviews absolutely have their role, and um, research has its role, but there's a wealth of evidence um, that we, we extract from those minds and brains of those frontline workers, and which we document, and which we then can extract key learning and can direct us as well, and the key research we need to undertake, the key systematic reviews we need to do. But um, there's a wealth of, of, of evidence out there. Now, this whole session was about evidence in a humanitarian crisis. Um, and I suppose my first question is really, what is the evidence we're talking about here? Are we talking systematic reviews? Are we talking kind of case studies? You know, what's the picture of the kind of thing that, um, that we're talking about? Maybe, Phil, will I start with you? Well, evidence aid has, as a priority, taken systematic reviews as its key um, type of evidence because we think there is a need to collate, bring together, collate, appraise and distribute, disseminate the evidence. Uh, it's simply because it's a priority because we found that that was effective with Cochrane uh, in its work in, in changing healthcare and with the Campbell collaboration. But uh, it goes to the heart of what our session was about, what counts as evidence. And the evidence is not going to be only randomised trials by a long way, nor even uh, counterfactual studies with quasi-experimental designs. It is a very broad notion of evidence. And we're finding that in bringing our evidence for the reviews we're going to have to do, it's going to have to have impact evaluations that use counterfactuals, but it's going to have to have qualitative, integrative um, types of evidence using qualitative data. It's going to have to use case studies indeed. Uh, and that's the point. The challenge is to broaden the net and to have criteria of what counts as good quality once you've broadened that net. That's how I see the evidence base for the humanitarian sector. Mm. And I mean, part of this is around setting kind of the questions that we need to answer in these situations. Um, and Marie, you had a really good example from, from the recent Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa that, you know, there was a big evidence gap that you, you helped kind of close a little bit. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so at the Emergency Nutrition Network, we have um, a rich connection and a wealth of networks, um, researchers, advisors, UN agencies, programmers, and we run a technical forum for people worldwide to post their most challenging, difficult questions. It's called NNET. And we got a question during the height of the Ebola response around what to do around infant feeding and breastfeeding with a mother who was coming in with suspected Ebola and what she should do with her infant. This question was posted online and there was no easy answer. So we rapidly convened an informal collection and collaboration of experts, practitioners, people from the region and people on the ground to really come up and look at the what evidence existed, what didn't exist, what we could apply to the situation and a risk and benefit balance. And within two weeks, we had rapid guidance that we were able to issue to practitioners on the ground. We also directly engaged with the normative guidance development of WHO. We informed them, they were involved in the process, and we informed their rapid guidance and then the long-term guidance. So there's a real need 
need to capture the learning of what happens on the ground and to address the questions. And at ENN, we are in touch with these frontline workers. We're learning from them and we're feeding that into the programming guidance development, to the policy development and to the researchers. And so they're identifying what are the key questions and then we're rapidly disseminating it so that there's uptake on the ground. Um, what kind of evidence was available about that particular question though? I mean, was there any you know, long-term sort of cohort study data or, you know, or was this all kind of based on um, the experience of, of people working on the ground? Yeah, there, there was no long cohort data. We drew a lot on the HIV and infant feeding, but I think mm. the big challenge was that the um, mortality associated with Ebola was so incredibly high. And um, what was, I think what was really great though was the connection with the programmers that we had. So we were connecting somebody working with an NGO in Sierra Leone with a super expert at WHO and we were making that bridge. Um, and it also, what was great was um, the connection on the ground showed the reality of the situation. So for example, where we, it was recommended that an infant should be separated from their mother because of the high risk and to have somebody care for that infant. It was very challenging to do that in practice mm. because that infant had been exposed to Ebola so who would look after that infant? And also a mother would say, I don't want to be separated from my baby. And so there's that real social and human aspect to humanitarian response that really played out on the, on the pages of our of our offering and meant that the policymakers and the guidance couldn't be disconnected from that reality. We had that cross-check with reality and that's where you get the most valuable evidence and pragmatic guidance um, in these sorts of situations. Mm -hmm. and I suppose that goes back to what you were talking about, Phil, that sort of what's good enough for the situation mm. given all the yeah, everything that, that's going on. Um, Nick, you you look at um, the sort of systems that that are built up around something like a, a response, or or you know, in the the wake of the response um, to to carry on, and you know that that's one step away from where there should maybe be a little bit more good evidence. Do you think? Yes. So within the Rebuild Consortium, which has been a, a very much yes, looking at the the health system and the way the health system has. Uh, evolved in settings that have been affected by conflict and crisis years and decades previously. Um, uh, and we've used um, both quantitative and qualitative, but some very rich qualitative approaches that have, um, to, to echo the point about the reality of the ground, using life histories and job histories with health workers and communities, understanding their access to healthcare and the, their experience of working, health workers' experience of working during um, uh, conflict, immediately after conflict, and in the long term afterwards, and how these systems have evolved and the impacts on access of healthcare for the most vulnerable population. So we've taken a retrospective health systems approach looking back mm -hmm. and understanding how situations of, uh, in conflict have evolved out of those. What our interest in, in uh, working with evidence aid is actually 
some of the learning that we've developed around the uh, health labor markets, about resource flows and actors and networks during and immediately after crisis and how those affect long-term uh, systems, that some of the learning from, from that, even if it has to be extrapolated into different contexts, is of relevance to share with people who are looking at current settings of conflict and crisis. And in particular, the situation of protracted crises where emergencies are going on for years and decades um, and people are living out uh, many, many years of their lives in settings that are effectively humanitarian settings. So intervening with what we're calling the that what is basically the humanitarian development interface. Um, that is a contested area because different um, organizations, uh, there's a whole infrastructure uh, built up around that. There are different approaches of different organizations, different sort of principles or and understanding how the evidence works in this interface between humanitarian and development is very complex. We've got a bit of evidence that is relevant for that, and we're seeking to get involved with people who are trying to make a difference immediately and save lives, but also trying to help understand how the way work, people work in those settings can play out in the medium and long term. Um, working with many others in this area. And going from a crisis situation to sort of medium term afterwards where something grew built to long term where you might be building up a sort of more mature health system, is there a sort of increase in the amount of evidence, um, good quality, better quality evidence as that goes along? Is it sort of a, a linear going up or, or you know, I'm just wondering what, what, how does the evidence evolve in that situation? I think that's a very complex area because I think the evidence is different because you are moving from the approaches, humanitarian approaches to development approaches. And they are, they shouldn't be different in terms of their ambition, but they are often sort of different in terms of the, the, the approach to evidence, the approach to research. Um, I think in answer, a simple answer to whether the evidence actually is good in post-conflict settings, the answer to that is no. Uh, because fundamentally that trajectory, uh, the, the simple trajectory of coming out of conflicts and more stable and end development um, uh, is not doesn't often happen. I mean, uh, long-term protracted crises, uh, countries like Sierra Leone that we were working in as a post-conflict setting, um, no accident really that the site of the, of the worst Ebola outbreak ever clearly happened in settings of countries, all the, all the main three countries had been conflict and crisis affected decade, the decade or so previously. So weak health systems, um, th those are still weak. The evidence and the research to understand those settings was also um, very poor. So there's very little work that's actually going on, even in the longer term post-conflict settings. We're trying to address that um, with others who are working in this field, but it's not a good body of evidence at the moment. There's a um, a group, a thematic working group under the Health Systems Global that is uh, looking at focusing on health systems in fragile and conflicted settings, trying to address this as a body of now sort of more than 800 people, practitioners, donors, researchers, trying to address this gap in uh, good re health systems research in these settings. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to address it. And I suppose part of the problem here is that the people who 
are trying to provide care in an emergency situations are the same ones who might be having to generate some of this evidence. And there is a, a tension that goes on there. Um, Marta, from Oxfam's point of view, you know, how do you balance that tension and how do you decide this bit of data collection, this bit of research is worth the time taken away from, you know, actually helping people um, sort of in a one-to-one way? Yeah, I think that that we have two different type of cases. I think that the, in the ongoing responses, the priority is to deliver the response. And it's clear that because we don't work in isolation, we work with other actors and we have donors, in some cases we have requirements of information that we want to collect and information that we need to collect. So in those cases, and I think that in a first phase response, in the moment where the response is looking at saving lives, in general terms, the teams are looking at delivering the aid and ensuring that we reach as much uh, of the affected population as possible. And in this moment, this tension is quite clear. I think that after, when things are getting more uh, settled down and there is more clarity on the responses and the teams are there, we enter with a more robust approach and try to order what is the data collection that we do. I think that this is what happened. In addition, I think that the humanitarian sector is being developing more and more research. And we have research strategies and research plans, and we have questions on which we know that we need more evidence. And, and we try to work in a more um, consistent way in relation to those questions. So in our case, we have a clear research and innovation strategy in relation to water sanitation and and uh, hygiene, and, and we work with universities and we take advantage of some opportunities in order to implement. So I think that there is not only one answer, there are different type of contexts and different solutions. We try to do the best, mm-hmm. but in a context where, uh, in, a, in a high emergency, in the first phase, the priority we is saving lives, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Phil, you were saying that you work a lot in systematic reviews in this mm-hmm. area. And I think in medicine in the UK, wherever else, you think of a systematic review as giving a pretty definitive yeah. answer to something. But in a space where there's a lot going on, there's a lot of sort of messy data, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of contextual factors. Yeah. Um, can a systematic review actually give you that sort of definitive? Well, first of all, I'm not so sure it does in the medical sector because there are many areas where if you look at Cochrane reviews, they often land up being uh, equipoise. Uh, we can't make a judgment either because hasn't, they say the studies aren't good enough or because they had, the, the balance is, is equipoise. Okay, So I think we face that in medicine and other areas where systematic reviews have been developed in education, for instance, in policing studies. Um, so the second point is uh, evidence doesn't just exist in a vacuum. Evidence doesn't tell you what to do you need judgment you need interpretation of evidence and I think what we need to do is to collect also how people have used evidence from systematic reviews what sort of judgments they've been able to make upon it in different contexts and that's exactly what you need in the humanitarian sector because it's so context specific Uh, you really do need to get collections of what people how have people been able to use evidence but we've got to start somewhere we've decided at 3AI just to to make sure we pull together, collate, appraise, and and disseminate what we have, and we are tr- we're trying to emulate the Cochrane Campbell model, but we've got to adapt it because we're dealing with a very different set of circumstances and a very different knowledge base, mm. and and we must embrace that. 
and how are you adapting it? Well, we're, we're doing it by, first of all, not having uh, definitive statements, uh, by uh, integrating different types of evidence. Um, uh, we've learned this from the development sector as well, that uh, uh, a, a good systematic review will always, in, in these sectors, humanitarian international development sectors, both, you've got to have the effect size evidence, if you can get it, Okay, with all the uncertainty that comes with it. And as I was saying earlier, the barriers and facilitators evidence, the evidence you get from looking at the qualitative studies from people's accounts, from expert panels that you've talked about, where they're set up, that's where you're really finding the coming together of evidence. So with the synthesizing in that sense, synthesizing different sources of evidence um, and different notions of evidence. And, and as I said earlier, you just have to capture that. That's the world we live in, uh, in the humanitarian sector. And, and it's hard, but we'll live with it. Mm. And back to you, Marta, how does Oxfam use evidence like this? Do you have any examples of, you know, integrating something that, that maybe has come out of uh, evidence aid or elsewhere to, into, into your response? So, yeah, we try to be... Uh knowledge base and integrating evidence in the programming. So every time that we start a response, if the response, for example, is ready to an outbreak, yeah, the technical teams are looking at the evidence that we have and they are the ones supporting and, uh, and leaning on the strategy definition. So this is a moment where we clearly integrate the evidence. We integrate in a normal day-to-day -day the evidence on the guidance and the different policies and different frameworks of work. So if we have a cholera guidance, this is already integrating all the evidence that we have from the field and we, implicate, and we implement that on the field. And then after we check it, we check to its extent because we know that the first phase of an emergency is very uh, is rapid. We do what we call the real-time reviews that are developed between the six, eight or 12 weeks after the setup of the response. And one of the benchmarks that we look at is to which extent we are integrating learning that we have from previous responses. So we do, and, and we try to know to which extent we are really applying that. Mm. That's what we do. That's interesting. Um, part of the conference here is always about, you know, evidence that has led us astray, maybe something that's turns out to be wrong. And I just wonder, in a, in a space like this where there's so much going on, do you worry that a message might get out that needs to be retracted? And, and do you have any ideas about how you would do that? You say retracted, you mean retracted from, from a journal? No, no, I mean retracted from, the, you know, one of our missions is to try and show where things that are being done are not the most appropriate things. Mm. Uh, if that, if that's attraction, we want to stop people doing things. I think one of the presentations you made this point: you don't want to do harm. Mm. People in the humanitarian business are not in the business of doing harm; they're in the business of preventing harm. Now, we want to give an evidence base for that. That's another adaptation. We try and say it looks as if we don't have evidence to justify this. Be cautious. And in some cases, where we we one or two cases, we actually in some of the mental health work that we in the reviews we've done on mental health in emergency settings, it's clearly doing no good and possibly is doing harm. So stop doing it until we have a more secure evidence base. You know, evidence is cumulative. We've learned that with Cochrane. A lot of the views have changed over time. So I think we've got to have that open view and that cumulative view about how we deal with evidence. 
I'd, um, I'd go back to what Phil was saying earlier, actually, which was uh, it's not it's not about giving a single definitive view. It's about enabling people to ask better questions when they're making decisions on the ground, and that 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 for me is what what the you know that's for me the trick. If I if I get uh, evidence aid right in the coming years, if we can do that, be in that space, that's where I think we need to be. It's it's not it's not about providing. So I think, yeah, it's it's not that we will allow a, a particular view to get out into the into the public domain, which might be wrong. It's it's that there there might be yeah we we're we're, we're enabling people to look critically at the the evidence that's available and make the best decision on the basis mm -hmm. of that. And and just to add to Ashim ENN, what's really valuable is to capture what goes wrong and what doesn't work as well as what goes right. Um, and when we produce our publication field exchange, we capture learning about what goes wrong as well as what's right. And that needs a transparency, that needs an honesty, um, and it can be challenging for agencies to document that because they are accountable to donors and they have um, challenge, they have to be shown to doing the right thing. But I think as much as we can encourage that type of evidence too, um, we see publication bias about positive results always being um, published in journals. Um, and I think there's a there's a, an increasing move to, to share what goes wrong as well, which I think is very encouraging. That's all for this podcast. If you've not done yet, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. You'll also be able to find our fullback catalogue. That's going back almost 10 years now on bmj.com slash podcasts. All free to access. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.